Let's pray. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Father, as we come to you and we open your word, we ask that you would fix our eyes and fill our hearts with those things that are unseen and eternal. I pray, God, that we would not lose heart in this frustrating world, that we would not lose hope when everything around us seems to crumble. Father, we pray that you would use just these next few moments as we open your word and consider it to fill us with joy and the hope of the gospel. And pray all that in the name of your son. Amen. Well, Christmas is a season of anticipation. Christmas is a season of anticipation. We are all here waiting for something. And anticipation is kind of a funny thing because uh, anticipation can fill you to the brim with joy, with excitement, with expectation, because you, if you know what's coming, right? So we all know December 25th in like, what, 15 days? It's coming, right? We're not going to miss that calendar day, right? We're not going to be disappointed. Oh, you know, we skipped over Christmas this year. No, we, we're anticipating it. We're excited about it, and it's, we're, we're leaning forward into it because we know it's coming. But when there's some kind of ambiguity, when there's some uncertainty, anticipation can actually do the opposite. Instead of filling us with joy and excitement, anticipation can create conflict and frustration. Now, here's what I mean by that. I did a really, really bad job preparing my wife for when I was going to propose to her. Uh, we were, you know, dating. It was towards the end of college. Uh, and she knew it might be coming, but I did not steward her anticipation very well. This is a public confession I have to make here. Uh, we were dating, right? We reached a point uh, where... Uh, you know, we thought this might stick. You know, I liked her. She tolerated me. Perfect recipe for marriage, right? That's all we need right there. There it is. So I went out and I bought a ring. And I started planning a very nice, very romantic, wonderful proposal. However, whenever Kristen wanted to talk about the possibility of getting engaged, I just shut down the conversation. I didn't want to talk about it. I wanted it to be a surprise, right? Women love surprises, right? Right? And so, and so, I, she, would, she would say, you know, don't you think, you know, like we got to start kind of planning our lives? Maybe we should. No, nope, no, no, not talking about it. Shut it down. I actually, uh, I guarded the surprise so well that I may have given the impression that I wasn't, I wasn't all that interested. Uh, and uh, for a bit, there was some tension. We had some conflict in our relationship around this super well-guarded surprise. Thankfully, uh, 10 years of marriage later, I have learned much more how to care for my wife. I'm still learning. Uh, but 
I'm not doing that anymore, thank goodness. Uh, I have learned that starting things off with some unnecessary ambiguity isn't necessarily helpful, right? And that's the kind of anticipation, something taking longer than expected, something uh, with some uncertainty around it, that's the kind of anticipation we're actually going to look at this morning. So this week, our, our Advent series, right, Josh and announcements kind of walked us through what we're going to be doing. We're kind of tracing the story of Scripture up to Emmanuel and up to the hope and the joy and the glory that comes with Christmas. And today, we have a bit of an impossible task, a bit of a tall order. Uh, today, we're going to try to summarize and understand the hopes and the promises of the entire Old Testament in a single sermon. That's all we're doing. Just the whole Old Testament in a sermon. That's all, that's all, you know. Hey, Lee, could you do this? Sure, yeah, Jared, no worries. I can do that. Sounds great. Uh, well, but, but the point of this is not just for me to suffer in trying to get the whole Old Testament in front of you on a Sunday. Uh, the point is for us, as we anticipate Christmas, to get a sense of the hope, the anticipation that the Old Testament believers had longing forward towards that very first Christmas. We need to understand what happened after the exile from the garden, what Jared preached about last week, what happened throughout the history of the Old Testament leading up to the day that baby Jesus lay in the manger and all of the hopes were answered. And to do that, we actually need to understand something about the faith of the Old Testament, and that is the fact that the Old Testament itself was a religion of hope. The Old Testament is all about hope. We often, if you're, you know, in January, you're going to start a Bible reading plan or something, you will most likely get the impression that the Old Testament's all about rules, regulations, do's and don'ts, right? And there are plenty of those things, but ultimately, fundamentally, the religion that's, that's displayed, that's taught in the Old Testament is all about hope. There's a faith of anticipation, of expectation. And actually, the clearest way to see that very quickly is just to jump ahead into the New Testament. So in Hebrews chapter 11, if you were raised in the church, some people call this the, the Faith Hall of Fame, right? It's just this list of kind of the heroes of the Old Testament. You get, you know, uh, Abraham and Noah and Moses and David. It just kind of goes through all these, these heavy hitters, the people of faith in the Old Testament. And it summarizes in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and Greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that we were strangers and exiles on the earth. Notice what the author of the letter to the Hebrews is saying. He's saying all the Old Testament heroes, these people of faith we, we hold up, they were all looking ahead. Their religion was a religion fundamentally about hope. They greeted these things from afar. Actually, earlier in the passage, in that chapter in Hebrews 11, he equates faith with hope. Verse 1, he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then from there, he goes through all these Old Testament heroes and shows how their faith, their religion was all about hope, all about expectation. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to survey the Old Testament and understand what they were hoping for. What was the object of their hope? So we're going we're gonna to do that. That'll be the main focus of our time. And then we will look to the answer to all of their hopes. 
And then finally, we'll consider what it means for us and for our hopes. So to understand these expectations, the hopes of the Old Testament, most of our time is going to focus on 2 Samuel chapter 7, which Mike just read for us. We're going, to, we're going to kind of bounce around a little bit in the Old Testament this morning, but if you have your Bible open, probably keep it there because that's, that's kind of going to be our, our launching point to understand the hopes of the Old Testament. And there are going to be three hopes we're going to see, three hopes that come out of this passage and that really span the entire Old Testament. First, the hope of a forever king. Second, the hope of justice and mercy. And then third, the hope of God with us. The hope of a forever king, of justice and mercy, and the hope of God with us. Let's go ahead and we'll start with that first one, the hope of this king who will reign forever. One of the most telling questions you could ask someone, if you could travel back in time, uh, someone in Old Testament Israel, one of the most telling questions you could ask them is, who is your king? Who is your king? And the answer to that question would tell you just about everything you need to know about the circumstances of their lives. If you don't believe me, one thing you can do is go watch The Lion King. It's a great movie. But one thing you see in The Lion King is when Scar is ruling over the Pride Lands, everything is dark and desolate and bad. And then when Simba rules over the Pride Lands, everything flourishes and there's prosperity, right? Who is king determines the welfare of everyone living under them. And that's true throughout the entire Old Testament. There's highs and there's lows, mostly depending on who's the king. Is the king encouraging the people to righteousness or is he setting up altars to worship these false gods? So good times with good kings and bad times with bad kings. And that pattern actually began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. So last week, Jared preached for us about this exile from the garden when Adam and Eve were kicked out. And one thing that we need to recognize is that exile from the garden, from Eden, was an exile of a king. It was a king being sent into exile. When God made Adam and Eve, this is what he said to them, Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. You're going to reign. Be king over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God set up Adam as king over this creation that he had made. And that's why two chapters later in Genesis 3, when Adam falls into sin, all of creation falls with him. Everything collapses because now the world has a bad king. When you have a bad king, everyone suffers. And that's basically the story of the Old Testament. This revolving door of leaders. You, you know, sometimes things go well and sometimes, sometimes things go poorly. And worst of all, worst of all, nobody lasts. Even when you have someone who's great, they die. So Moses is pretty good. He's a pretty good ruler for God's people. And then he dies. And then there's Joshua, and he's pretty good. And then he dies, and then the judges come, and they're a hot mess of flaming garbage. Thank goodness they don't last. And then there's Saul, who's kind of cool, and then also turns out to be a hot mess of flaming garbage. And there's, there's just all this whiplash. You can imagine of just constant change. Just imagine like a family having a new dad every week. Like it's just, it's just this revolving door, and it's just frustrating and exhausting. And then you get David, which brings us here to 2 Samuel chapter 
7. So David was, for the most part, a pretty good king. God's people flourished under him, and God spoke to him through his prophet Nathan. So look at verse 8. This is what God says to David. He says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Nathan, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. Remember how bad that went? And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Remember, David's the king, so a house is a a dynasty. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now skip to verse 16. He repeats that. He says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne, David, your throne shall be established forever. That's what God is promising his people. He's going to take a son of David and make him the king forever and ever. And see what that means. Most of the passage is God unpacking how awesome that's going to be for his people. It means there's going to be peace. There's going to be rest. There's going to be a place to live. And then best of all, it's going to last forever. Forever and ever, his throne will be established. This whiplash, the revolving door is going to end. God's people will have their forever king. God's basically saying, I'm putting Simba on the throne and it's going to stay that way. That's the hope, the promise. David's son will make everything great forever. And the history of the Old Testament looks nothing like that. That's not what happens. Barely a generation later, after David, the kingdom splits into two. And then kings came and went. None of them lasted. And even the best ones were just temporary relief. And finally, finally, it led to the exact same problem going all the way back to the garden, exile. God's people were kicked out of their land. The place that they were promised was taken. The peace and rest they were promised never actually came. And the king himself was taken into exile. That's actually where the book of 2 Kings, which records the history of Israel's kings, creative names, right? 2 Kings is all about the kings of Israel. But 2 Kings 25, this is the last words in the book, this history of the kings of Israel. What does it say? Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. That's David's descendant. And this Babylonian king, it says he spoke kindly to him, gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon, So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table, and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. Now that sounds like, oh, things are getting better. He's not in prison anymore, right? A descendant of David, freed from prison. That's great. But that's a really, really low bar for your king. 
I mean, he's still in exile. He's, he's depending on the mercy of a pagan ruler, and he's getting allowance like a well-behaved teenager. I mean, this is not what God's people were promised. And even from there, the rest of the Old Testament, even after the return from exile, the promise never comes true. There is no forever king. And the hopes of God's people are just frustrated. But, but the prophets, as they always do, we're going to see this again and again, the prophets give us this glimpse, they give us this hope of something ahead that God has not, in fact, forgotten his promise. Zechariah 9.9. There's several places I could have gone. This is a, a regular promise in the prophets. But Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. God repeats the promise. He repeats the promise. The forever king is coming, just not yet. And that's the first hope of God's people in the Old Testament, this king who will reign forever and bring peace and prosperity to God's people. And whether you realize it or not, brothers and sisters, we all share this same exact hope. We all have this hope of a forever king. We are desperate. We're desperate. In every area of our lives, we're desperate for a good king who stays. We're not made to be masters of ourselves. We're not made to, to decide everything for ourselves and be the ones who determine our own welfare. We were made to flourish under the authority of a good ruler. That's built into every human heart in our mistake. Where we go wrong is we look for that in all the wrong places. So we demand this, this perfect rule from those who are never actually supposed to give it to us. Why is it so easy to make an idol out of politics? Why is that so easy? Why is it so common just at a real grassroots level to gripe about your boss? This, this, this. The boss drives me crazy. He's like this, whatever. Why is it, why is it so common for a, a wayward kid to, to hold a grudge against good but imperfect parents? Why do those things happen? Because we all crave the right kind of king. We crave a good king who will stay, who will take care of us and make everything around us right. It's what we were made for. And we put that burden on those who can't bear it, and obviously we're disappointed. Our hope is frustrated. We all need a forever king. That's the first hope. The second is the hope of both justice and mercy. We see this throughout the Old Testament. This one's a little less obvious in 2 Samuel, but we do see it. So right in the middle, while God's making all these promises about this king who's coming from David's line, he says, verse 14, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes, that's a punishment, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So God here is promising with this coming king that God will show both justice and mercy. He will punish the iniquity of this king. He'll bring justice. And yet, despite his sin, God will set his love on him forever. His kingdom will last forever. And there's an obvious tension there. How can both of those things coexist? 
How, how can God be both just and merciful? That's one of the primary Old Testaments we see throughout the whole, or sorry, one of the primary tensions we see throughout the whole Old Testament. I think the place you see it most clearly is in God's own character as he describes it in Exodus 34. Look at this. This is, language is so similar to 2 Samuel 7. God talks about his own character. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. How can that be? How can that happen? How, how, how can God both forgive and yet by no means clear the guilty? How can he do that? The, the problem of sin needs to be dealt with, and God says, okay, I'm going to deal with it with justice and mercy, which doesn't seem possible. There's a tension, and that tension throughout the entire Old Testament is never resolved. We never find the answer. We see both of these things. We see God being just, and we see him being merciful. For example, in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, and they deserve judgment, they deserve to die, what does God do? He shows mercy. He clothes them in animal skins. The first sacrifice in human history covers their shame. And in Israel, that same system, the sacrificial system, goats and bulls dying as sin offerings, that continues. We see God's mercy, but we also see his justice. In the flood, early in the pages of Genesis, God wipes out almost all of humankind in his just wrath. In exile, God brings his judgment on his own people. He brings in Assyria and Babylon to wipe his own people out of their own land. We see justice, we see mercy, but it's never really both. It's never both, and the, the problem isn't dealt with because the problem actually goes down to the level of our own hearts. Something in us is wrong. We have rebellion. We have defiance against God in our hearts. And sacrifices can't resolve that. The exile can't address that. All they really do is just kick the can down the road a little bit. But once again, the prophets provide a little glimpse of hope. They give a look at how this can be resolved, how mercy can coexist with justice. Isaiah 53, very famous passage. The prophet foresees one who will come, and he says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So God promises somehow, some way, there is another, there is one who will come to suffer for sin. There is a, a resolution to both God's need for justice and his need to be merciful, flowing from his own character, that peace, our peace, can be purchased by someone else's punishment. 
And we're familiar with this passage, right? Isaiah 53, you read it every Good Friday, right? It's, it's just kind of in our DNA. We're aware of it. But just imagine, imagine being one of the Israelites who was maybe Isaiah himself or one of the Israelites reading his prophecy for the first time. Like, what? That sounds amazing. That's incredible. And Isaiah prophesied in the 8th century B.C., So there was 800 years between this prophecy and Christ. Imagine that way. Okay, God, you made this promise. Is it it really coming? We're still waiting. We're still continuing in sin. Actually, things are getting worse and worse. There's no justice. There's no mercy. And hope is frustrated. And we too, church, feel that same frustration. We hope for justice and mercy, and they elude us. Now read the news. You will see people longing for justice in the world. It doesn't matter what your political orientation is. It doesn't even matter what your worldview is. Everyone has a desire for justice. We can't, we can't bear the thought that wickedness would go completely unpunished. We demand it. There must be retribution. But at the same time, we love mercy. We see beauty and glory in showing mercy to those who don't deserve it. We want our own failures to be forgiven. We don't want to be defined by our own mistakes. And this tension, this desire for justice and mercy, it exists in us. It exists in our own hearts. How can that coexist? How can both of those things come true? And we don't get an answer, so hope is frustrated. And then third, the final promise in the Old Testament that we're going to look at is the promise of God's presence. God promises his presence. This is actually where 2 Samuel 7 begins. So it starts this whole conversation that God kind of turns to talking about a king from David's line. David says, I want to build a house, a place for God to live among his people. So look at verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. God said, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And all the places where I moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? It's almost funny, right? David has this idea. I know what I want to do. I want to build God a temple. And God's like, cool idea. Not what I want. And he starts talking about this hope for a a king. Uh, But he doesn't leave the temple totally out of it. If you look at verse 13, he brings it back. He says, this king shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So there's those two things hang together. This coming king and the house that will be built, the temple that will honor God's name, that will be God's dwelling place. So the temple's not off the table. It's just it's going to happen God's way and in God's own timing. 
But we might ask, where does this desire that David has come from? Why does God have, not God, why does David have this idea, I want to make a house for God? Well, again, he's, he's experiencing the hope that God's people experienced throughout the entire Old Testament. After getting kicked out of the garden, what did they lose? The garden wasn't primarily about yummy fruit and you know, scenic vistas and sunny days. The garden was about getting to be with God. It was about walking with him and knowing him, seeing him face to face. And so their separation, their exile was not primarily from a place, but from a person, from God himself. And that's the hurt that Adam and Eve and all of us feel most, this this distance, this wall, this separation between us and God. We are not united to the very one we were made for. The Old Testament, in wonderful ways, tells the story of God moving to be with his people. We see it in the Exodus when he's with them. He leads them as a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. He instructs them to make the tabernacle, which was his dwelling place. And it's so cool. If you look at the book of Numbers, the tabernacle, the tent where God lives, is in the center of the camp and all their other tents face it. They're all facing him because God dwells among them. That's where their hope is. They're not facing the outside, oh, what if an enemy comes? They're facing the tent. They're facing where God is because he's their hope. His presence with them is more important than anything else, any hope they could ever have. And David's son, the next generation, Solomon, will build a temple. He makes this glorious building. And it says in 2 Samuel, the glory of the Lord descended on the temple and God filled it and God dwelled in what appeared to be a permanent dwelling place with his people. But there are two really big problems. First, the distance, this separation between man and God isn't actually resolved. It's like two magnets that just kind of repel each other. They're, they're not supposed to attract. They keep moving further away. Every time God comes closer, God's people have to get really careful and step back a little bit. Even with the temple, there's all these, these barriers between them and God. There's all these rules about like only the high priest can go into the most holy place, and that's once a year, and you got to tie a leg around his foot so you can drag him out if he dies because this isn't safe. We can't actually be with God. It's like, it's like having a roommate, but you never actually see them. You like you live in the same place, but there's walls always between you. You can never have a conversation. That's what it is. That's what it's like for God's people in the Old Testament living with God's temple or the tabernacle before it in their midst. And then the second, really obvious, big problem is the temple doesn't last. It was leveled by Israel's enemies when the people were taken into captivity, and actually. In Ezekiel's prophecy, it talks about how the glory of the Lord went up and left the temple. Because God's people were in such sin, such rebellion, that God took his glory out of it and left. And when they come back after the exile and build a new, much smaller temple, it never says God's glory returned. So the ultimate exile. Our banishment from the presence of God is never actually resolved, and this is something we too also feel every single day. 
We feel deep at the center of the human heart, there's a missing piece. There's an ache for our creator to be at home with the one we were made for. And we can't fill that void. We try. We certainly try with everything we can get our hands on. We, we try to, to fill this ache with the approval of others, with, with relationships, with money, with success, with whatever, yeah, material things. And these are just pitiful replacements for the God who is beauty and joy in himself. None of those can fill that hole. There's no earthly puzzle piece that can fit a space made for God. But once more, the Old Testament prophets hold out this remarkable hope. Isaiah chapter 7, the prophet comes to the king and says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Potentially the most famous Christmas passage in the whole Old Testament. One you've probably all heard before. A woman will conceive, it will be a boy, and his name will be Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a combination of three Hebrew words, a little Hebrew lesson for you. Im, which means with, nu, which is a suffix, it means us, and el, which means God. So Immuel, Emmanuel, God with us, the with us God. So Emmanuel, the name itself, describes one who is God himself present among us. The answer to what was lost, the missing puzzle piece, a woman will bear a child and he will be Emmanuel, God with us. And in the very next chapter of Isaiah, that was Isaiah 7, in Isaiah chapter 8, you know what happens? A woman conceives and bears a son. And do you know what his name is? Maher Shalal Hashbaz. What? What does that mean? It doesn't it mean something. It's kind of complicated. It doesn't matter all that much because it doesn't mean God with us. I mean, can you imagine like, like being Isaiah? Oh my goodness, this vir- the, the virgin is going to conceive and bear a son and his name is Emmanuel. A woman conceives, bears a son. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. What? Talk about frustrated hopes. A baby's coming, and that's not the one we were expecting. So hope is frustrated. And that sense, that Isaiah 7 to Isaiah 8 sense of baby's coming, not that one, is the story of the whole Old Testament. The Old Testament shows us the problems, it promises the solutions, and then it does nothing but display its own inability to provide those solutions. Everything falls short. So if you were here last week, Jared talked about the problems that came from our exile. Three problems, right? We have an external problem, the world around us isn't right. We have an internal problem. The sin within us is, is, there's something wrong within our own hearts. And we have an eternal problem. We're separated from the presence of God. Well, those are the three hopes we've looked at, right? Those are the three things 
that the, the hopes of the Old Testament are, are, are pointing forward to, the right king will fix all that's wrong around us. Justice and mercy will fix the problem in us, and Emmanuel will be God with us. The Old Testament is a story of hope, but it is all about frustrated hopes, and it closes without answers. And worst of all, after all that, there's 400 years of divine silence. The last prophet dies, and for 400 years, God refused to talk to anyone. Probably they felt like Kristen felt when I refused to talk about engagement. And that's the story of the Old Testament and of all human history, anticipation with no answers. And then out of the blue, one night, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by, but in thy dark streets shineth an everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And God kept every one of the promises he made. Uh, in 2007, Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, he got on stage at their big annual event, very famous to announce the first ever iPhone. It was a big deal. Kids, they didn't always exist. It's amazing. And Jobs got on stage and he said, I'm excited to unveil not one, not two, but three revolutionary new products. And he said, here's the three products. A widescreen iPod with touch controls, a revolutionary mobile phone, and a breakthrough internet communicator. And then he repeated himself. A widescreen iPod with touch controls, a revolutionary mobile phone, and a breakthrough internet communicator. And he repeated it again and again. And he said, are you getting it? These are not, one, or not three products, but one product. And the iPhone, woo, people went crazy. It's great. And it may sound like I've told three different stories today, three separate hopes, three promises, the hope for a king, the hope for a savior, the hope for God himself, the hope for a king, the hope for a savior, the hope for God himself. And God repeated that again and again and again on that Bethlehem night, and it's like he was saying, are you getting it? All our hopes are answered in this one little baby that lay in the hay. The saints of the Old Testament did not receive the one they hoped for. They greeted him from afar. But we have him, church, and that's what we celebrate at Christmas. We look back to the first Christmas, because in Christ we have the unimaginable blessing of a forever king. In a world of failed leaders, of frustrating circumstances where everything seems wrong and in rebellion, we have the, we have the one hope for, the king who brings peace and rest to God's people. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. 
In Christ, we have the wonder of both justice and mercy together. The impossible tension is resolved. It's what we just sang. Gift of gifts in manger laid, hope of men no more delayed. God, the just, his love displayed. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Justice and mercy, justice and love, both came in Christ because he will take the justice for sin on himself and pour God's mercy out on us. And in Christ, we have greatest of all, God with us, Emmanuel. And not just for a moment. He came in the flesh, but before he ascended into heaven, he made a promise to his people, and he said, I am, not I will be, not I was, I am with you always to the end of the age. He is Emmanuel forever. He is God with us. So those who love Jesus are not in exile anymore. We may feel like we're in exile because we live in a world that is not our home, but the ultimate problem of exile, being separate from God himself, is resolved if you are in Christ. He is with us in our pains, in our trials, in our joys, in our triumphs. God is with us. Some of you may have heard me mention John Patton before. He was a missionary, a Scottish missionary to an island in the South Pacific. Uh, And the island where he went to go and preach Christ was inhabited by cannibals. And one day the natives there decided to kill him. And he was abandoned by his friends and he ran for his life and he hid in a chestnut tree. And this is from his own autobiography. These are his words describing that night when they came to kill him. He says, I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches, safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Listen to this. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself. Have you a friend that will not fail you then? That's what it means to have Christ with us. To have Emmanuel, we have that friend so that, like John Patton, you can be in the worst situation of your entire life and you cannot be alone because he's with you. In Christ, We have received all the hopes of God's people. All the promises find their yes in him. And yet, and yet, as amazing as that is, every promise was answered in a surprising way, 
and in a way that creates more anticipation. The king came, but in a manger among the animals, and his reign isn't complete yet. Justice and mercy came, but only through suffering and death, and they have not yet come in full. And God is with us by his spirit. We, in Christ, are his temple. But we don't yet see him face to face. We also are a people of hope, of anticipation. We have all these things, all these things the Old Testament saints greeted from afar. We have. But like the Old Testament saints, we have them by faith and not by sight. Not yet. So we too are a people of frustrated hopes. But that does not mean we're like Kristen, waiting to see if there's going to be a proposal. No, actually, we're not, we're not waiting on God with no confidence, brothers and sisters. He's given us the ring, and we're awaiting the final ceremony. That's what it means to be in Christ, one day he will return and he will complete the work he has begun in us. So, brothers and sisters, this Christmas, as we look back, we also look forward. And we remember we are still waiting. We are a people of hope. We live between the first and the second coming of Christ. And so, when you are worn down, when the incompleteness of God's promises creates frustration and despair in you, when you're, when you're just worn out by the world around you that's not right, when you're struggling with your own sin, with the problems within you that aren't right, and when you, when you long for union with God that is not what it ought to be yet, when those cries fill your heart, know that one day they will be answered, and we know that because the hope of Christmas is not simply that Christ has come, is that he is also coming again. And he has proven that in his first coming. That we can have confidence as we look ahead to the day he returns because he came. And so, yes, we grieve the trials of the world. We long for a king, but not as those without hope. We yearn for righteousness to reign, but not out of frustration, like it never will, but confidence that it will. And we ache to be united with God, and one day, one day we will see him face to face. So brothers and sisters, continue in anticipation and in hope. God has made his promises, and he will see them through. Let's pray. Father, you keep your promises. Even when we are frustrated, even when we are in despair, even when it seems to us that it will never happen, you have proven in a great, surprising, and yet marvelous, glorious way that you will keep your promises no matter what. And we pray that this Christmas season we would be filled with hope, that we would look ahead to his return and we would delight now and always in our Savior who is with us now and one day we will get to see. 
with our eyes. We pray that day would come soon. Amen.